excited to be sharing my conversation with Temo with you all. Uh, if you watched and liked The Social Dilemma on Netflix, that documentary, I think you will find this episode to be really interesting because it's all about the cornerstone of um, technology and mental health and how technology really has a malignant effect on our well-being um, as you know, kind of The Social Dilemma hinted at, but this is looking at it more from a psychological perspective. So yeah, I think you'll really enjoy the episode. Um, but before I jump into it, I do want to quickly mention that I have a really exciting sponsorship um, that I can't reveal just yet, but definitely stay tuned because I'll announce that in a couple of weeks. And I think, um, I yeah, and I'm really excited to be able to share that with you guys. Um, but anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Temo. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Solace in the City. Today, I am so, so excited to be here with Temo Keshalashvili. Hopefully, I said that right. Yes. <laughs> Who is a psychologist, PhD candidate, and post-academic psychoanalytic candidate. Um, welcome. I feel like I'm with someone who is well beyond <laughs> my academic caliber, but I'm really excited to speak with you. Mm -hmm. Hello, Zoe. It's nice to be here. So before we jump into the psychology portion, why don't you just tell me a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? How old are you? Where'd you grow up? What's your story? Mm -hmm. uh, I was born in Tbilisi in uh, Georgia. It's Southeast Europe, uh, the Republic of Georgia. Um, I'm in mid-30s now, and uh, so doing my PhD and my psychonautic training, which is almost uh, finished, but I'm um, still working on it. Um, yeah, I, I have a private practice in Toronto, in Canada right now, um, but I started uh, my private practice uh, in 2008, right after uh, Georgia had the shortest war in human history in Russia, it was five day war. Uh, so um, after that, I was I had uh, brief trainings uh, by some international organizations uh, such as uh, IOM, Save the Children, uh, World Vision, and those trainings were about psychotherapy. And but I had uh, my uh, education at Tbilisi State University. I studied personality psychology, psychotherapy, and one year classical psychoanalysis there. So I had some good background to start uh, my private practice. So it's it's been already, I guess, uh, 12, almost 13 years I'm in private practice. Wow. So it seems like you knew that you were wanted to go into the psychological route from a at least you know young age in terms of your academic studies so how did you become interested in psychology and like what drew you to the field um i actually wanted to become a philosopher <laughs> a while ago 
but it wasn't almost like an accident that uh, uh, my older brother introduced um, a book by Freud. It was actually a collection of uh, his works. And that uh, definitely changed my interest. And I, I was pretty much absorbed by his works for actually many years. <laughs> Even mm-hmm. now, I still, I still read some of his uh, works and articles. Um, yeah, after that, I read Eric Fromm and Adam Phillips. Um, that really drew my attention and interest towards contemporary psychoanalysis, which is um, a slightly different school of thought uh, comparing to the classical psychoanalytic school of thought. So that's a little bit my background. But we didn't have a psychoanalytic um, school um, or institution in Georgia. We still don't have it. And we are actually actively working to establish one. Um, and I hope, uh, this, so this is my plan to uh, contribute as much as I can and um, um, to establish a psychoanalytic institute in Georgia in, uh, I hope, in new, near future. So COVID also played some role in this process that, mm-hmm. uh, that is actually very important, I guess, for many people. Yeah. As a, as a post-Soviet country, um, in Georgia, we have a different situation because psychoanalysis is probably the most uh, popular modality of therapy and theory. Uh, no, it's, it's not exclusive for Georgia. It's the same in many post-Soviet countries because it was under the um, censorship of uh, Soviet system. And um, after Soviet collapsed, uh, what happened was that... Uh, People were, you know, really interested in uh, all kinds of things uh, that was under the taboo. So including philosophies and psychologies, you know, like um, um, we had the first publications uh, of uh, Friedrich Nietzsche that was actually translated into Georgian almost a century before it was published, but it was under the censorship. So then the Freud, uh, I think the first uh, book was published in 1995, believe or not, it's pretty late for yeah for psychoanalytic uh, development in the country. And uh, so that's a little bit about the background. Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. And I feel like I could have a whole other podcast on how like the censorship and, you know, the interest in understanding oneself and understanding the psyche after being you know, for lack of a better term, controlled by your government. So that's super fascinating in itself. Yeah, yeah, it is. One more thing I would like to add is that uh, 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 it was um, a very interesting Georgian intellectual, Mirab Mamardashvili, who dedicated a series of lectures to psychoanalysis. But he was a philosopher and he had a pretty interesting and pretty different um, ideas about psychoanalysis and psychoanalysis as a, a way of, uh, you know, studying mind and also a different, different type of epistemology. And uh, so actually I read his book and Freud, his collection of uh, lectures and Freud's book at the same time. So that was the beginning of my interest in psycho psychology and psychoanalysis in general. Yeah. That's so interesting. I'll need to look him up. <laughs> and so was your passion or 
did your passion at all stem from personal experience in terms of any, I mean, I know my interest, for example, in, in, um, psychology and becoming a therapist is largely selfish in a way in terms of, I want to understand myself and why I, you know, experienced anxiety and experienced depression. Did that, was that your experience similar at all? Or was it more of that interest in philosophy, which, you know, I'd say philosophy and psychology are cousins in a, in a way? Well, that's a very good question. And uh, I think, uh, yes, absolutely. I did have some uh, very challenging traumatic experiences um, in my teenage years. Um, you can imagine the country that was pretty much devastated by Soviet, you know, the collapse of Soviet system because we had a profound social chaos in, in Tbilisi and in Georgia and the rest of the country. Um, and often I think about my society, um, which I admire very much in many ways, but also I have some critical thoughts about our political and social situation, what, what could be done better way uh, throughout this you know, new history, new beginning after uh, Soviet collapsed and we, we got our independence. But we had 13 month war with Russia. Um, you can imagine country that is uh, 5 million. Now it's less than 4 million, but uh, it was 5 million then. Um, that was devastating experience for everyone, I guess. Um, and I, I had uh, friends uh, who were refugees from that place, Abkhazia. And I heard so many, you know, really horrifying stories from them. And I had my own experiences there too. I think that uh, really, um, drove me in a way that uh, I found, um, you know, philosophy very interesting, but because that was the only source of um, uh, knowledge that was about human mind or spirit. Uh, um, and uh, then I found myself, I was more interested in 20th century philosophers and the personality problem, what is called a personality problem in philosophy. Um, but it's definitely my interest in philosophy and the, the personality problem was definitely coming from my own experiences of pretty stressful moments, I would say, um, back then in 90s, what is called the dark 90s uh, among uh, my community. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's truly trauma at its, you know, large in its largest sense. Um, but a definitely unique perspective to this podcast. I've not yet <laughs> heard anyone, um, you know, speak to a, you know, going through a war. So um, thank you for sharing that. Well, I, I, I was not certainly part of the war. Uh, I lived in capital city, but, you know, um, it was almost like an indirect participation in that because, you know, Russia was is a huge empire and yeah so really challenged the whole country and the social life and social mind I would say in general definitely yeah still challenges yeah that's for sure so how did you go into specializing in or studying the malignant influence of technology on modern societies where did that interest come from mm -hmm. um 
I came to Canada five years ago, uh, almost six years ago, and it was a huge shift because I think I certainly had um, very similar attitude and approach and understanding of technology before my own immigration. Um, I thought it was all good. I mm -hmm. certainly had this, what is called the idealizing fantasies about technical pro uh, technological progress in Western civilization. Um, that really shaped once I became an immigrant because I found myself spending a lot of time, um, uh, you know, on the platform platforms like, you know, whatever it's, it's about the, so my, my, uh, engagement with social media. And I also realized that, um, well, you can easily imagine someone who is, um, who is a new immigrant beyond that screen, beyond that platform is hold your community, your family, your friends, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And it was, it was a pretty uh, challenging period because I studied and I worked here. Um, and I found that uh, my engagement was something I would call, if not necessary, an, addictive behavior um, and if, if it's not about the addiction it's certainly about the excessive behavior um, um, you know once I realized that I was wasting a significant amount of time on, on some you know silly things like um, just spending time or wasting time on social media I was um, very concerned about that and I really really wanted to study how it works mm -hmm. and Sometimes I say that I almost had two trainings at the same time. I studied psychoanalysis, but also I read nearly probably at least more than 300 articles throughout, you know, this three, three and a half years. Um, so almost on a daily basis. So I learned a lot about how technology works, how, what is the, um, uh, intersection of psychology and technology in a, in a way that um, this giant high-tech companies, um, you know, doing something that is almost like using the hidden knowledge, like a secret knowledge um, uh, and the methods of manipulation. And that that has nothing to do with conspiracy or paranoia or yeah. how how they are driving society in a bad way or something. It's just about the commercial interests and this very deep, profound conflict between what is the social interest and what is the corporate interest. Um, and uh, I think that was something that um, I really picked up and I learned a lot. How, how can we capitalize a human attention? and mm -hmm. you know how much time we spend on the screen and how how can we how can actually the corporations uh, uh this huge giant high-tech companies can convert that um into money and that's a huge business in modern world um yeah. and, it's, and i think we would be um 
mild and not enough critical if we say that it's just about the advertisement business. It's not. It's much more than that. There is a political um, agenda and uh, or agenda and um, you know so many other things like what type of society we need to have, what I what type of consumers they need to um, create, um, why the the happiness ideology and this what is called a toxic positivity. Um, you know, those are almost like a small branches of ideology we have, which is pretty subtle ideologies. And, you know, there are moments when people blame me that, oh, you're left or you're, I don't know, communist or anarchist. And I don't consider myself, uh, I, don't, I don't affiliate myself to any political wing or any political ideology at all. Um, I really like what uh, a, a great psychoanalyst Heinz Kohat said once. Uh, he said, "When I when I listen uh, a right wing or left wing or Republicans or Democrats, I can understand all of their positions." So I think it's just a matter of, for me, it's just a matter of social justice. But it but in its um, more profound and deep sense, you know, I, I think. I think that's something that that I'm really interested in um, since since I had my own experience, my complicated experience with technology. So it yeah. began with my own personal ex experience. It's fascinating. I mean, especially now seeing like I grew up and I'd say Instagram was brought out when I was maybe a sophomore, junior year in high school, and it didn't really grow until I was well into college. And I see now, you know, five-year-olds with iPhones and I just look and I'm like I am so happy that I miss that like that I did not grow up in this social media world and it's scary thinking about how that's just going to continue to grow so I was wondering if you could shed some light on some of the more interesting findings you've discovered through all these articles and through your research like how companies are as you said, like capitalizing on our attention and um, just anything interesting that, you know, you could share with my listeners. Oh, absolutely. Uh, first of all, I would um, recommend a couple of books to people who are really interested in that. Uh, I would say three titles and then I go on and talk about a little bit about, you know, those books and articles. Um, I think one of the first work that was, I'm very much interested in social criticism in general, but that work was um, published in 1985 by Neil Postman, and it's called Amusing Our Ourselves to Death. And that book is about the, this, um, you know, the entertainment business that is getting too much in Western society, you know, like um, um, the, the concerts and the TV series, uh, film business, show business in general. And if I very briefly say what that book is about, it's, it's and, and this book is full of wisdom at the same time, it's a pleasure to read that book. Uh, the author has a profound, profoundly, um, um, uh, sort of a very good language in a sense that uh, when you read you you it's a pleasure to read that book i think 
um, I certainly recommend that one. And this book is about the use of entertainment business. And the author himself uh, actually never used the typewriter. He was <laughs> using the pen and the paper. Um, he criticized the idea about having the automatic, uh, you know, the, the windows in the car, it's better to have a mechanic and so on, and the manual car and so on. So it, maybe he has this radical position, but this book is full of wisdom. And there is one quote by another uh, author um, that says the, the medium is the messenger. And the idea of that quote is a central idea in that book. That means what type of medium we use to communicate with each other actually has a, a huge influence on social life and individu individual's life as well. Like if we are sitting in the same room, our communication might be totally different from uh, if we are chatting or if we are using telephone or if we are using Zoom, right, as we are doing right now. So that has an influence. But this is about the individual communication that might be might not be that much different. But if you imagine the societies there that interacts with its members and the and the interaction and the relationship between the power and the society or mm -hmm. the government and the, or the state and the society. If, if the state uses the newspaper, it's very different. If the state uses radio, it's very different. If the state uses television, it's even much more different from using just the radio. And we see this evolution throughout the history, right? Um, uh, because the printing press was at least, um, you know, off, like it was a couple of hundred years after Gutenberg invented this printing press. And then we had a radio. And I think Hitler was the first politician who started using this huge speakers and radio to indoctrinate the society. And that profoundly changed the methods and the way uh, state organized the societies. You know, we had this fascist and uh, totalitarian systems, same did the Stalin. Mm -hmm. um, and so radio became a powerful tool and a telephone, of course, uh, in the hands of politicians. But if you go on and on and you think about what is going on right now, today, because we have all of those ways of communication between state and the, and the society, um, it's very complicated. And I think Neil Postman's main idea about, about the use of um, medium we have, the, so on that time it was television, was that the entertainment business became almost like a shield between um, what is called the uh, dissociation between classes. So the upper class uses a huge amount of entertainment mm -hmm. to you know, outsmart uh, the, the rest of the society, middle class or, or even um, uh, you know, whole society, I would say. And I think he has a profound viewpoint. And I, I would certainly recommend to read that book um, to anyone. But there, is, uh, there, there are other works that, really interest, that are really interesting from the, social, from the uh, stance of social criticism. That is um, Americanization of Narcissism. It's an amazing work. Um, the author discusses uh, 
you know, what was the Kohat's idea about the narcissist? What was the Otto Kernberg's idea about the narcissist? How it is um, used and very much exploited by, you know, corporations and, and, and the modern companies, I guess. Um, and uh, that book also provides so many insights about what is going on right now in our industrial culture. That's a mm. very interesting work. And another book is very alarming, I would say. And I would certainly recommend to any parent or teenager or um, it's, it's, not, it's not pleasure to read that book, but it's, it's about this um, unpleasant truth we have right now. It's called the iGen. Um, it's a brilliant work and it's about, it has two dimensions, I would say, the statistical one and, and also qualitative and quantitative research, both. And that book tells us about this excessive use and, the, and the, the, the screen addiction and the internet addiction, suicide rates that almost tripled in, in the United States mm -hmm. uh, since um, iPhone was introduced. That's why wow. the, the title of the book is iGen. It means iPhone generation. Oh, okay. So even, I think it was probably this week. No, I think last weekend I read um, another alarming uh, article about um, this lockdown's influence and impact on schools. Um, uh, the suicide rate among teenagers, were, it was really high uh even 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 before covid but now it's doubled and it's a really really alarming situation yeah um so i think the the relationship between human mind and technology is at least i think it should be one of the central issues that you know all the intellectuals and people who are in power and who, people who feel some responsibility towards themselves, their families, towards society, um, need to learn more and more. Because I think if you, if you read history carefully and critically, what you see is that, um, you know, the nationalism and religion, those two systems of ideas were used to organize societies mm -hmm. and to indoctrinate societies then after the modernization what happened was that power like a state used uh, only nationalism and what was eric from called it the secular religions uh, nazism and communism and we still have the, those regimes on earth right now right so and i think it's it's a huge shift in in Western society. Uh, what I call it's certainly about the new liberal order, but it's about this subtle, almost invisible use of uh, behavioral addiction, screen addiction, uh, porn addiction is uh, plays a huge role, and you can anyone can see the statistics of you know, the, this huge disproportion of internet content, it's almost like 70% is pornography in, on internet. Wow. And even after that, people criticize Freud and call, call him a pansexualist, you know? Um, it's almost like he predicted what, ha what would happen in the future. Yeah. Uh, he, get, he, he paid a huge attention to sexuality, but, but, but in a very particular way, I, I don't think it's uh, Freud's idea about sexuality is narrow and, uh, 
banal at some point. I think it's a profound idea and it's about, uh, you know, how humans think about sexuality and sex in general. Sex in mind is very different from uh, actual sexual intercourse. So it's a totally different um, topic. I, I, would, um, I would love to talk about that more, but not now because we are talking about technology. Um, yeah, well, I, I do think that technology plays, it, it became a, a severe instrument uh, in the hands of um, powerful people. Yeah. I think we are blindly using that when we don't think about what is that, how, it's manipulate, how it is manipulating on our minds. Um, and I don't think the solution is, oh, just go ahead and control your screen time. I do not think that when it comes to this huge, vast global problems uh, can be solved in an, on an individual way. Yeah, yeah, maybe we can find individuals who have very strong self-discipline skills and they can control their time. They can really manage their lives. Maybe you belong to one of them. Maybe I do, but it's not, it's not the solution of the problem. And, you know, Freud criticized uh, religion and nationalists as well, but in a very particular way, he said, you know, it's about, yes, it's about sublimation, but it's a wrong sublimation. It's, a, it's, it's unproductive. Sometimes it's self-destructive. It's about illusions and so on and so on. Yeah. And I think... I think we have less religious society in at least in Western part of the world, more secular society, but we almost created the new religion that is totally secular there. We don't have any system of beliefs and so on, but it's very much or heavily based on the behavioral addiction and this stimular reaction process, you know, like you, you, you use only your finger to feed yourself with this, huge amount of information that is mm-hmm. scary because it's about the you know um i may have some critical ideas about the behaviors in general but i very much appreciate they work but i have some critical ideas about their the the ethical use of behavioral the knowledge that we gained in behavioral science because it's used in a very manipulated way that is a yeah. huge problem. He causes a huge problem um, in Western society in general. And there are so many conferences, um, uh, letters sent to governments to create departments, to create, um, um, you know, uh, some institutions that would um, uh, profess or regulate this, uh, the, this huge problem. Uh, I'm very familiar with one that happened in um, Great Britain. Uh, it was, mm-hmm. you know, a huge letter was sent to state that they needed to think about this, the screen time and the quality time. And, and it was an accident that I read about that because um, I was reading something by Peter Fonagy, uh, a, a great psychoanalyst who also participated in that committee uh, so he was one one of the person who signed that letter, and um, but you know nothing really happened there, not much. So the question is still there because 
it's the it's the conflict of interests yeah because these huge companies um have very you know a greedy approach to their business they don't care about the mental health issues they don't care about social interests what they care about is their you know wealth yeah. and they're they're okay it seems they are okay to use all kinds of unethical um, and very manipulative uh, techniques to keep people online and to you know draw society uh, in this weird um, engagement in social media and the rest of the things and i really like what you said before um, and I, i'll finish here <laughs> that <laughs> i guess we both belong to generations that spend at least some part of their lives and we know what was life before the internet yeah and you you have something in your mind to compare to what is going on right now but people going forward will will not have that which is really scary absolutely yeah yeah i've i have a ton of questions but i'll try to narrow that down the first i guess is well, one thing you mentioned, which I thought was super interesting, was that comment about those who are, I might butcher this, but basically those who are in power have the effect to influence or to make the change, to make change per se. Like they would be the ones to say like to regulate. But what's, you know, the catch 22 here is that who are those in power? Amazon, Facebook, uh, Google, like they're the ones who are causing these issues to begin with. Like, yes, there's politicians, but I love what um, Mark Benioff, the CEO of of Salesforce says, which he, he says businesses are the greatest platform for change. And so if you have business the biggest businesses being those exact ones that are hiring these attention engineers and hiring and and finding ways to capture um you know to suck us in it you're we're kind of at this standstill of like how do we escape it's almost like a an alternative or um not sure reality or like a well, it is. It's, yeah. it's, I wouldn't call it an alternative reality necessarily. I think it's, it's a version of augmented reality mm -hmm. because behind those profiles, there are real people. Yeah. Uh, but actually there is a, a new book, a very interesting book. It's called the Infocalypse, Informational Apocalypse. Oh. And that tells us about um about this new phenomena of fake profiles um uh you know this those um almost like uh, you know the this new situation that even the information itself is produced not by uh journalists or people but ai and it's yeah. generated by ai and you could you could be bombarded by the articles that are totally about Gibberish. nonsense, you know, fake news or non-existent things. And it's a well-known fact that how social media was um, blamed um, in um, indirect 
engagement or at least uh, contributed in genocide in Uganda. Mm -hmm. um, that was a terrifying thing and it plays a role uh, because people are using it in a very bad way, you know, um, in a, I would say evil way. I'm careful with this word, but you know, they tar targeted each other and it was a genocide there and not much happened after that, you know, um, yeah, nothing really changed. I, no light was shed on it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, those are issues that needs to be discussed and, um, you know, we, we need, uh, a whole new social discourse for that. Definitely. I, I was wondering, you mentioned that there, the suicide rate grew, grew exponentially among children um, after the invention of the iPhone. Do you know why that is? Well, I wouldn't say it's, it's necessary about the iPhone. But would the technology increase? Uh, well, I think in that book, it's indicated that um, this, um, uh, the iPhone became a medium. It's not about that Apple had bad plans or evil plans, certainly not, but it's certainly about this side effect um, that is still there because when the first, um, you know, the first, this huge um, um, increase of screen time actually began with Maybe it sounds ridiculous, but it's uh, it's the fact that uh, when uh, the, the 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 mouse scroll was invented, you know, when you're scrolling, but on yeah, the mouse, we didn't have sense. touch screens on that. So they realized. I mean, when I say they, I mean people beyond the platforms, beyond the websites, beyond you know the the consumer consumer experience. Uh, they realized that. It was a huge shift in in in, in that um, indication, you know, like people. Like the attention, yeah. Yes, like ten or well, it's an exaggeration, but two, three, four times more time on screen than before the invention of this mouse scroll, and mm -hmm. they realized they actually uh, pushed on a button that that was well known for um, people working casinos because that gives you almost like an infinite experience. You know, there is no end. You can scroll throughout days and days, not mm -hmm. months and years. And um, so that, that was a first, um, almost like a hint. So where to go uh, to keep people on screen, to have more social engagement in all, on, on the platforms. Yeah. And uh, so after that, we had, you know, the push screens and then the touch screens. No, and no, the touch screen is a new, new player and it's a new animal, I would say. It's, it's a yeah. totally different thing. It's, it's very addictive. Wow. And uh, I think, um, you know, there are research that indicates that it's extremely dangerous for kids between zero and three years. They actually, they, they can really harm themselves. So um, if they use iPhone or iPad or some, well, I, I don't wanna go against one particular company. I'm not against technology at all. I'm not. It's just an easy example. 
yeah, I, I'm not the person who is saying technology is bad. So even even more, I say I would I would like to say that um, social media is a good thing. I think it's it's a great idea. It's a huge progressive step forward. But the particular versions we have of social media, those versions are bad. They are yeah. operating in a very unethical way. And I think my criticism and my concern is about the ethical design and ethical use of business model, I think. Yeah. No, I agree. I use people make or my friends make fun of me because I still use Facebook, but I do it to keep in touch with my friends who are living in Greece, my friends, um, my family members who I don't see every day um, to find people to bring on the podcast, like in those ways. So I feel like in that sense, I use that in a healthy way. Whereas, you know, when you're scrolling through Instagram, it's a lot more of like a mindless just activity. And um, in that I can spot myself saying, is this the best thing to be doing right now? Probably not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But maybe it's a very mild way to express that we are just wasting our time on on screens i think i think the modern social media platforms became uh, a fabric of certain type of psychopathologies mm-hmm. uh, like narcissism and you know histrionic people can be very much absorbed by those platforms and that may may or may not um be you know intentionally designed that way I, I still have no knowledge about that because we know that, you know, one particle of social media platform, FB, um, <laughs> um, you know, advertises his own print, its own principle as we need to create open, open community. And that's there and, and it's free and always will be. So those are the, the main messages um, mm-hmm. um, uh, thrown to people but if you ask the question how open this organization is by itself it's certainly about the hypocrisy yeah because it's so difficult to go into facebook system they said no to researchers psychologists who wanted to see correlation or causation between suicide rates and what is going on in social media why the algorithms are working in a way that they you know that they harm teenagers so much but they said no and they didn't really give an explanation you know and um, that's that's a huge thing yeah that's a huge thing and i think we need more people to speak out and talk about those problems because we are ignoring we are driving ourselves and whole society and whole humanity I, I would say towards um some strange type of dystopian reality yeah and i i'm certainly against it i'm certainly against it and i'm very critical about that definitely i guess to end this on like a light note <laughs> or a lighter note what are some what are some things that are happening that can give us hope that, you know, our world isn't heading to some type of uh, 
I forget the word, te- technocracy that we're going to, you know, be a big brother, 1984. What are some things that we can, that can keep us optimistic? It's a pretty difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> one more thing before I answer that question, I would like to share one more thing that actually draw my attention towards technology even much before I, I came to Canada. Uh, I had one particular patient um, many, many years ago, maybe 10 years ago, uh, maybe a little less, that was, it, it was a very first case when I encountered someone who kind of almost like stopped living and um, encapsulated himself in this small computer universe. And he was visiting me and almost like spending 50 minutes uh, talking about who liked whom, who commented what, what was his reaction, and someone blocked him. And, um, and I told myself, if I never had a social media, I would not be able to understand what he is talking about. Yeah. yeah. And that was my first interest, actually. Um, when I think about <laughs> if we have any reason to be optimistic about this huge global problem, I think we do have some reason to be optimistic because we still have politicians, we still have social critics, we still have people who are aware of this huge problem, which is mm-hmm. intertwined with economic interests and political interests. No one has a doubt that, you know, the social media platforms and this addiction-based technologies are very much, um, you know, um, sort of very much, they are almost like an extension of political and economic system we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the optimism right now lies in criticism. We need more critical thinking than we ever needed, probably. Yeah. Uh, because um, maybe, I, I could be wrong, but I think it's much easier to survive physically in our culture, but it's much, much more difficult to survive mentally in our culture. Oh, I, and I, when I, I say agree. about When I say about Uh, the word mental survival, I mean to become who you really are, to become a real, real individual, not just, not just a member of the culture or the society, but then, but an individual in its very particular way, particular sense, um, I would say psychoanalytic humanistic sense to give birth to yourself, as Eric Fromm put it, that means that you need, of course, you need to socialize. You need to be normal mm-hmm. um, um, in, in its good way, but also you need to have your own individual unique normality. That is, you know, it's about this very unique attunement to your own unconscious, to your own uh, true self. That, that is getting almost impossible in our culture. Because if the individual spends entire day online, 
and then like I don't know work and the social media that raises a, a very very strong critical question about about the alienation about the estrangement from oneself from the environment and from nature as well mm. that is not the new thing but I I think I still have some optimism and I I I think we still see some people who are very critical about the issue and I, I, I feel in some ways optimistic about that, that we still have some chances and some power to change um, the direction of our culture and society. That means the huge changes in economic system and huge changes in political system. We will see that in the future. I agree and I hope. <laughs> well, Tama, thank you so much. Where can all of my um, listeners learn more about you, learn more about um, your practice, your studies? Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I have my own private practice in Toronto, um, in Canada, as I said. Um, I can share some information about myself and my institute, that is Toronto Institute for Contemporary Psychoanalysis. Um, I'm among those enthusiastic candidates on <laughs> that institute's website. So what would not be difficult to contact me, so. Great, and I guess before I end, do you have a piece of advice to anyone who is, I guess, trying to maintain a healthier relationship with the, or, um, <laughs> with a technological device or platform? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm a little skeptical about the advices and <laughs> instructions uh, that is very common and popular thing um, today, um, today's world. Um, but I certainly recommend anyone to start analysis. Uh, it's a great way to explore oneself and to explore what is going on in our culture, to explore um, one's everyday life and biography as well and also to explore the fantasies about the future, the individual fantasies about the future and the collective fantasies about the future. Um, another thing is I may recommend, as I did before, um, recommend to uh, read more social critics, such as, I don't know, um, Christopher Lash, Eric Fromm, Adam Phillips, Christopher Ballas, um, um, Stephen Michel, he had very interesting critical ideas about neoliberal order and neoliberal agendas in general. Um, and, and there are so many platforms that are, I mean, you know, um, that the newspapers and internet magazines that, that, that are writing about this issue. And I, I certainly recommend to not to follow them, but to just to open their articles. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much again. And Bye, everyone. Bye. It was a pleasure.